Welcome to the Art School Podcast. I'm Ken Goshen. Today's episode is absolutely packed with down-to-earth technical advice, which I expect any painting enthusiast will appreciate, and a few inflammatory opinions which may or may not stir the pot. This episode is an Ask Me Anything episode, which means that instead of having a guest that I can question, the questions were directed at me by a panel of my Patreon supporters. We covered a ton of important topics, such as how to mix colors for figurative work, how to build confidence, issues regarding social media, the importance or lack thereof of art university degrees, the status of realism in contemporary art, discussions around supplies, how to use color theory to effectively push color beyond the boundaries of realism, the everlasting photographic reference conundrum, recommended limited palettes, how to use quick sketches to support ambitious projects, how to teach classical painterly principles to young children, and more. Now, some patrons also asked questions about an upcoming workshop, so let me fill you in on some info regarding that. I have a three-week pastel workshop coming up every Tuesday of August at 6 p.m. Eastern, and all my Patreon supporters are invited, starting at as little as $2. I recently changed my teaching model, and going forward, my online painting and drawing workshops will take place exclusively on my Patreon. I'm doing this at great financial risk since the workshops that used to constitute the majority of my income are now available almost for free. $2 Patreon members can attend all live lessons, and $10 Patreon members have unlimited access to lesson recordings, which they can watch at any time. As of now, this model is not financially sustainable, but I have faith that if enough of you know what I'm building here, you'll lend your support to this project. I am working tirelessly to make art education available to anyone who wants to learn, anywhere in the world. And the only way that I can keep my lessons as affordable as they are right now is if many more of you decide to join as Patreon members. Think about it. For the price of less than a cup of coffee, you'll have access to more than three monthly lessons. For the price of two cups of coffee, you'll also have access to over 150 hours of recorded content. And you'll be supporting the cause of making art education affordable and accessible. You get it, right? So visit kengoshen.com slash lessons for more information or sign up directly at patreon.com slash kengoshen. Thanks in advance for your support and see you on Tuesdays. All right, let's dive in. Ask Me Anything episode number three. Here we go. I'm going to start with Leonard. So unmute. Hey, everyone. Hey, Leonard. Good to hey. hear from you. No. Um, yeah, I... Um primarily want to uh, would like to talk about uh, skin colors and what are uh, some basic um, principles that you've uh, learned um, in in your approach to painting and uh, yeah I would generally would really like to to talk about tints and then uh, yeah color mixing and everything about uh, figurative uh, painting and skin tones and that's, okay, uh, so maybe you have like a principle, like like a really general approach to it somehow. Yeah. So loaded question there, loaded question there. It might not sound like <laughs> yeah, it's loaded, yeah. but it but it kind of is. And and the reason for that is, 
we're bringing this brings into high relief a kind of tension between a dogmatic approach to skin color like here's a formula for how to mix skin or not mix skin and i want to say that anything i'm about to say about skin color and i have a lot to say about that you should take um You should understand that there are these formulas, but in fact, it's those moments that break the formulas apart that I find to be the most beautiful in paintings, right? Like, for example, here's something I'm going to say, and then I'm going to contradict myself on purpose. So in general, almost all skin colors are going to be somewhere in between the range of red, orange, or yellow. And the chroma is just going to be very, very, very low for almost all instances. So if you take some kind of orange and you mix it with black and white until it goes grayer and grayer and grayer, it's going to end up in a skin tone. If you take a yellow and you put black and white in it until it goes gray and gray and gray and gray, as soon as it's sufficiently gray, it's going to start looking like a skin tone. Same goes for red, same goes for orange, same goes for yellow. But, but those moments when you look at a person And then something happens, and for some reason you see a purple or you see a green or you see a blue, those moments can really bring your painting to life. So if you stick to the principle that the majority of skin tones are low chroma, orange, reds or yellows, you're going to end up with a painting that is reliably boring, reliably boring, right? So that is not something that I would necessarily recommend. as a way to improve at mixing skin tones. If the question is, how do I improve at mixing them? Well, my answer to that would be kind of what's on the back of my wall here. You want to take a lot of portraits and a lot of figurative paintings that you appreciate from history and do a deep dive into the colors that are on there because you're going to see, for example, I have Sargent behind me. I have Bougaro. I have Vermeer. I have Rembrandt, I have Rubens, all of these copies on my wall, you're going to discover that despite the fact that all of these people are painting European men who have similar skin tones, they use completely different colors, completely different colors. And this, this is without even getting into the subject that there are people with really dark skin tones, really light skin tones. So the variation is just immense. So what I recommend that you do if you want to really get better at it is Grab some of those figure paintings that you like, sit on, you know, sit on a chair and mix those colors on a palette until they match. You know, you can even print them out from your printer and match those colors one by one. Once you have, you know, a good 20 colors that you've mixed based on a Rembrandt or based on a Sargent or based on whoever it is that you admire most, once you have that on your palette, man, you're going to be a much stronger painter. Yeah. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. Nice, of nice. I just I just saw a really delicious um palette um photo of it on Instagram that you uh posted and uh, mm. yeah, I kind of asked you um on direct message uh, if you could explain it so uh, Ah, re- yeah, I remember that. I, I remember kinda, that. Yeah, okay. So <laughs> now that you bring on that photo, I can tell mm. you Uh, what you were looking at. It's a good, it's a, so oh, yeah, to, that, to, that to everybody here who's listening to this podcast via audio, y'all should be following me on Instagram. So <laughs> that's, that's something Definitely. that has to happen. Uh, but something that I like to do when I'm working with, with skin tones, and this is true, especially when I'm working on a portrait that involves in any kind of way, photography, 
right? Photography is a terrible reference, which I hate using. And the reason for that is it just takes everything that's interesting about the colors and erases them. Like if you're looking at my face on Zoom right now, you're going to see that all these light areas pretty much look the same. And that's really boring and a total bummer. So what I make sure that I do is in every value of the skin, like let's say I have a value for the lightest light, a value for the second lightest light, a value for the middle, a value for the darks. In all of those values, I make sure that I mix variations. And my favorite variations for skin are a yellow variation, an orange variation, a red variation, and the gray variation. That's almost the bare minimum. So in my lightest lights, I have four. Then in my second lightest lights, I have four. Then I have four and in my darkest darks, four. And that's the minimum. And then usually I also supplement with saying, oh my God, in this value, I also see a green. So I'd mix a green or a purple or something more exotic to make sure that my painting doesn't end up boring. But you're almost never going to catch me just mix one color for the lights and that's it. Because then you're going to get something that looks extremely photographic where all the lights are the same color, all the shadows are the same color. And I'm going to get bored. And, you know, I have no patience for these kinds of artworks. They're, they're not exciting enough color-wise. Yeah, thanks. Of course. <laughs> thanks happy, happy to do it, man. <laughs> All right. So, Great. Emily, how's it going? Hey, Ken. How's it going? Going good. Good to see you. Good to see you, too. Um, I've got a couple questions um, from, let's see. Sorry, what was her name? Kushpa. Ah, fantastic. So I'll go ahead and ask them because they're really great questions and I'm curious your answers. Um, so she says, I'm never confident when it comes to speaking about my work. I don't post anything on Instagram. I work every day and I do want to put myself out there. That's the reason why I wanted to attend the live session, just to challenge myself and speak up. So the question is, how do I build my confidence? Mm, that's a really, really good question. Whoops. So, okay. I may have an answer to this, this that, that I hope, I hope it's applicable to, to most of you, but I strongly believe that everything in life that you learn and grow at and develop at and improve at is to some extent skill-based. And everything that is skill-based is cultivated by repetition. Just plain and simple. You know, you want to get better at drawing, you make more drawings. You want to get better at drawings, but you can't draw a two meter by two meter drawing yet. Great. Do a, do one that's like, you know, an A4 size, right? So what you want to do is you want to incorporate some form of repetition to make sure that you're improving at a skill. And if you can't even repeat it once because it's too intimidating, repeat it on a small scale. So in terms of like confidence, when it comes to speaking about your work, what would be a small scale version of that? Speak about your work to your sister, right? That's very low stakes, very low risk. You're, you're, what, what's your sister going to do? You know, she's going to laugh at you. No, right? Your sister is going to be supportive. Then raise the stakes, you know, talk about it to your sister and your best friend and then your sister and your best friend and your mom. And then, you know, you grab, you get to a point where you have 10 family members and friends and you speak about your work in front of those people. So you gradually increase and increase the radius of, of this activity until at some point you discover, man, I think I have enough confidence to speak about my work in a more public setting. 
So maybe you put up a work on Instagram, but you don't really want to know what other people have to say yet. So you turn off comments or you don't even write a caption. You just put it out there and you live with the feeling, knowing that it's out there in the world uh, for people to engage with. And, and slowly, incrementally, step after step, you kind of open yourself up more and more uh, to, to the feedback and to the, you know, to the ravages of the outside world. Now, something that I think is important to kind of mention ab- about that is, especially when we're talking about the setting of social media, you really cannot, and I do repeat that, cannot let what people say on social media influence how you feel about your work. And that is for better and for worse. You need to really understand that there is a fundamental contradiction between what we are trying to do as artists and what social media as an activity encourages. By that, I mean, when I make a painting, I want to put somebody in a, you know, deliberative, contemplative modus operandi, right? I want them to look and feel and think and, and have emotions. And, and that's not social media is trying to sell you cereal. You know, that's not the goal. That's not what's going on there. People are scrolling past and, you know, sometimes they just kind of miss your work. And then a post may be, you know, failing, not because it's a bad painting, but because social media is a bad, is a bad platform. And it's especially bad when it comes to art. And it's especially bad when it comes to building your confidence. So you have to be thorough very thorough in detaching your confidence and your feeling of self-worth and your assessment of your artwork, detach it completely from how a work performs on social media. And if my talking about this in the abstract is not sufficiently persuasive, I'm going to give an example that is operational, concrete, and specific that should completely prove my claims. So here's something that we know we being people who are on Instagram and, and post work frequently, we know works best on Instagram, even though it makes the work look terrible. I'm going to explain this. So let's imagine we have a painting, okay? A painting, whatever, of a flower. doesn't matter what it is. If you give me two options of how to upload this same painting onto Instagram, option number one, scan it professionally the same way that you would put it on your website, right? Just a clean, beautiful scan of the painting with all the colors being corrected and accurate and true to life. And you just, boom, post that flower there. Or second option, you take that painting, you put it on your studio table with paint all over the place and two brushes kind of thrown in the background on that same painting, making that painting look objectively worse. And the colors are going to be less accurate, less true to the painting, I guarantee it that the second way of presenting the artwork is going to be way more successful. Okay, so you got twice the likes. Does it mean the painting got any better? No, right? It doesn't mean the painting got any better. So what succeeds on social media a lot of the time is nonsense. It's nonsense. What grabs people's emotional Uh, what pulls on people's emotional heartstrings is that they can, quote unquote, feel like they're there in your shoes, blah, blah, blah. They feel like they're in the studio, breathing in the smell of turpentine or whatever. These are people who are whatever on their way to the gym and thinking, wow, it'd be so cool to be a messy artist in the studio and such and such. And 
these things have more influence over your engagement on social media than the quality of your work. And once you understand that, you cannot be a logical person and maintain the connection between the success of a post on social media and the success of the work, all right? They are completely decoupled because what makes something work on social media has nothing to do with how well you paint, right? If you really want to know if a painting is successful or not, cultivate a group of peers you trust who are painters, who are artists. You know, I have, I have a few. You know one of them. You know Adi, right? Adi who taught anatomy to us. Adi is a close friend of mine. I trust her. I, I trust her because I've been, we've been painting together for like 10 years now. So I know her process. She knows my process. She knows what I'm going for. I know what she's going for. So when she's working on a painting, she shares it with me. I give her honest feedback and vice versa. And if you really want to make sure that you're getting feedback that is beneficial for your art, you want to get those groups of peers that you trust and, um, and be honest with each other, be open with each other, be vulnerable with each other. And that's really the way to grow. Social media, you know, that's, that's not for improving at painting. That's like a marketing tool or whatever branding tool, but don't, don't, take, don't take anything that comes back your way that has anything to do with your art. Don't take it to heart. Mm-hmm. So like moms and sisters are good at the confidence building. And then we've got the groups of peers who are good at challenging you to grow in your skill. And then the Instagram social media, which is great for a confidence non-booster, <laughs> trying to put yourself out there, then, you know, maybe you can grow your audience or whatever. Yeah. And I think, I think you said it really well. And, and perhaps we can put a bow on it by saying, you know, it's really easy to put your work on Instagram when you know that whatever comes back your way doesn't matter. <laughs> if, <laughs> if it's not consequential, who cares? right? If it's like, you got no comments, you got no likes, you just, just remember what I said. Oh, I should have smeared it with more paint and threw brushes on the table. That would have probably stirred people up. So it's nonsense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I do have another question from her. Okay. So her second question, is it mandatory to do a master's degree? At present, I'm learning from Patreon, YouTube, articles, museums, podcasts, and keeping myself updated. Would this lead me to be a successful artist or is a master's degree required? You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step guide to starting your podcast today. Well, if a master's degree is required, then I'm doomed. Uh, cause oh. I don't have a master's degree <laughs> and I, I don't really intend on getting a master's degree. Heck, you know, there's an argument to be made that if I could give back my bachelor's degree for the money that I spent on it, I might choose, might've chosen to, to do that. If I could get like a refund, uh, even just monetary, but if they could give me back the four years, you know, there's, there's an argument for that as well, because, well, before I go into my rant, I want to preface this by saying that it really, really depends on what you want to do with your career as an artist. 
because in some venues, you're gonna need that master's degree. Like for example, if you wanna teach art at Columbia University, forget about doing that without a master's degree, right? If you want, there, there are some elite institutions that have such a high, um, how would you call it? Like so many people are applying to work there or to show work there that they just don't have the ability to look at all the viable candidates. So they just put this arbitrary benchmark. And in my opinion, that's exactly what it is. It's an arbitrary benchmark. And they say just only people with master's degree can apply. That way they narrow down their applicants to 10% of the population. And this makes it a manageable project for them to actually pick a viable candidate. But in my opinion, this is all that this is. It's, it's just a benchmark that helps elite institutions save time. And you're helping them save time by wasting a ton of your money. Luckily, uh, you know, at least they don't, they don't even pretend that it's important enough to keep you there for more than two years. You know, they don't even, <laughs> it's so funny to me. They're like, okay, most master's degrees are like either a year or two years and you come into school for like a day or two during the week. I'm like, that, you know, that adds up to like two months of solid work. That's nothing. And that's what's going to get you this like sacred piece of paper so that elite institutions can look your way. Apologies to all the people who are in elite institutions listening to this right now. Please, you know, hire me. I'd come in. I'd do good work, right? Don't get me wrong. I want to work at these institutions. They pay well. And they have fancy buildings and all that is good and nice. But I mean, I just cannot imagine how it makes any sense to, to pay the fees that these institutions, you know, require. They're so incredibly expensive. And what they give you at the end is like a ticket to get into the elite. And for me, just like thinking about it and, and having experienced something very similar in my, in my bachelor's degree, I just kind of understood that this is not, if you're, a, if you're, if you're, again, it depends on what you want to do as an artist. And if what you want to do as an artist is like rub elbows with people in suits. Yeah. You might kind of need that. But if you, if you are more independent minded and I mean, I kind of like building things myself and I'm slightly allergic to having bosses or people tell me what to do. This is not really my style. So it depends on the kind of person you are. Um, and then in general, I have this like broader rant about art academia in general, that uh, the more I think about it, the more I think that it doesn't make any sense. And the way that I can explain it is today we say, I'm going to go do a degree in fine arts. And it sounds logical to all of us, but it sounds logical to all of us because we've grown up with the idea that this is something that happens in the world. However, let's say I come in with a new idea. And I say, Emily, I'm going to go do a degree in soccer, right? That immediately people are like, what? You're going to do a degree in soccer? And then I say, no, no, you know, I'm, I'm in between soccer and swimming, or I'm going to do a degree in being a fireman. What? So there's a ton of professions out there that when we say we're going to do a degree in them, we think that's blatantly crazy. And the funny thing is art is consistently more like those other things than like the things they do in university, right? Art is like soccer. The people who are great at soccer are the people who are playing soccer all day and watching videos of 
legendary soccer player analyzing exactly how they do their moves, trying to incorporate those moves into their own soccer practice, right? That's how you get good at soccer. That's how you get good at basketball. People get good in ba- at basketball by doing two things. One, playing a ton of basketball and two, being extremely well-versed with in, in the history of basketball and in what made the great uh, basketball players of the past amazing at what they do. That's it. You know, nobody today would, it, it, it wouldn't make sense to anybody if I told you I'm going to go do a degree in basketball. They would have told me, what are you crazy? Go play basketball and look at old videos of Michael Jordan and go see LeBron play today. You know, that's what you do if you want to go get good at basketball. And to me, that's what art is. And this whole idea of teaching art in academies is a fairly new idea. You know, people have been making art. We have evidence that we've been making art for at least 20,000 years. There's only been a ca- art academies for like less than 200 years or something like that. That's like a new development that people pretend that you can take this thing that doesn't belong in a school and put it in a school. Nah, I mean, <laughs> I'm not sold on this idea. And I mean, I was sold because obviously I went and I got my degree, but having done it and, you know, there's, you know, enough time has passed since I did. And I tend to think a lot about these kinds of topics. And I, I, I think to myself, no, man, if, you know, art is way more like swimming or like basketball or like soccer than it is like, you know, the stuff that makes sense to study in university, like physics, you know, it's not, we're not doing physics, you know, we're doing something that's way closer to sport. So for that, you know, there art can definitely be taught in schools. And that's something that I'm trying to build, right? Eventually, this whole Patreon thing that we're doing here is going to be a school. I mean, it already kind of is, it depends on how you call a school. But, you know, I could be doing a lesson here and There could be 20 people, 60 people, however many of you decide to show up. But that's a kind of school. And one day, hopefully, I will also have a brick and mortar school where I will build a curriculum that makes sense for the study of art. But it it needs to look more like a dojo. It needs to look like a gym. There's a coach. There's a lot of people who are training really hard and who are busily occupied with understanding the nature of their crafts, and they are sharpening their skills like knives. And then there's some guy who's like the dojo leader or the trainer or whatever, who just helps to make sure that they're sharpening their blades and not, not breaking their blades. But, you know, the, the, the person who trains people at jujitsu in the gym, he's not going to stand up and give a lecture in a university. That's not the same way to teach. It requires different curriculum. And the curriculum that I've experienced in art university, in my humble opinion, has nothing to do with teaching art at all. That's it. That's my opinion. You know, don't come at me. I'm like, whatever. You guys, anybody who disagrees, I'm happy to have a debate. Last time I said something like that, you know, you wouldn't believe the comments I got that. But whatever, you know, it is what it is. Well, awesome. And it sounds like she's doing, you know, quite a bit of the things that you would suggest anyways to up her, you know, artsmanship with the Patreon and museums and podcasts and all that learning. So, um, okay. She's got a third question. Mm -hmm. Um, Is realism underrated? Correct me if I'm wrong. I find that there are multiple divisions to the art world. The more the new things like contemporary art come up, the lesser the hype for realism. I've seen contemporary realistic artists, but less. What makes them stand out? Mm. 
That's a really, really good question. So I kind of feel compelled to say that I am not, you know, you can't take my opinion as unbiased, right? I have skin in this game. I, I do some of this alleged realism uh, in my personal practice. And do I feel like it's underrated? <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> But it's like, I kind of feel like every artist feels that what they're doing is underrated. So that being said, I'm going to try to be as objective as I can and tell you that unfortunately, realism has an uphill battle. And it's an uphill battle because everybody has a camera in their phone, right? And what happens with, with art is that in order to kind of experience art at a full, to, 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 its, to its fullest potential, you, you need to kind of cultivate your taste. And people without cultivated taste don't, sometimes don't really understand what the point is of making stuff that looks like stuff when you can photograph the stuff on the stuff that we all have in our pockets, right? So it's not, it's not a natural thing. And this, this, has been, this has been the gradual turn of events since the camera was invented. Since the camera was invented, that, that is pretty much when the decline of realism started and everything went in some positive directions and some less so uh, until the point where we have arrived today where, you know, some good stuff is being done, but a lot of, you know, things that are overrated are also being, being done and being sold for what I... what I conceive to be insanely overpriced, you know, prices, whatever. Like the market's a little crazy around art right now. So when you're saying, is realism overrated, uh, underrated, the question is, in what forum, right? In what forum? Because the art world has kind of divided itself into separate niches. And there's like, for example, here in New York, there's the niche around um, the Grand Central Atelier, who are like, these this group of super serious classicists who kind of are they're under the guidance of Jacob Collins and, and and many other very very skilled painters and when you walk through those doors it's 19th century France like that's what's up they're just talking you know they're speaking English but it's 19th century France and to them you know time didn't continue right that's that's what's up over there and to me that's another kind of crazy but it's a crazy that is easier for me to understand than the other kind of crazy that I see in some galleries in Chelsea. So you kind of got to pick your crazy because it's a, it's a, it's, 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 it's just a, it's just a discourse full of, of, of numerous kinds of crazies and, and navigating it is, is difficult because I'm not going to stand on the soapbox and say, you know, realism is the only way to go. Like not at all. I'm super psyched that developments were such that we got people like Rothko You know, I'm a huge admirer of Rothko's work and, and, you know, I even, I even learned from Mondrian. So there's, there's good painting to be done. That's, that's not realistic. And I'm, I'm happy that we got it. I do wish that in our cultural, you know, artistic cultural elite wouldn't look down on, on realism so much. And uh, because, because I think they're, they're just missing so much. And this, this is kind of, This has, this has a funny way of, of touching up against politics. You know, there's something about our day and age where elites are like, 
oh, that's the way things are. And all the people at the bottom are like, what are you talking about? You're so clearly detached from reality. So we kind of have that going on par excellence in the art world. It's like you're going to an art show and it's like Yves Klein or Cy Twombly or all the, this gang of, of people that I, you know, I, I'm allergic to. And all the, let's call them normies, right? Like the people who don't paint walk into the gallery and they say the quintessential annoying thing that they say, but is very, very appropriate. Quote, my kid could draw that, close quote, right? This is, you know, on some level it's annoying, but on another level, it's also an expression of the common folk telling the elite, you're out of touch, my man. You're totally out of touch. You guys are playing your little elite game pretending that this art has not entirely dropped the ball on the subject of aesthetic and that artists no longer have any um, any um, important role to play in society, like to pretend that as artists, we are not supposed to be worried about making people's lives better by cultivating, you know, the aesthetic environment around us to make sure that we live in a place that we don't feel like wants to kill us. You know, we make beautiful houses because it it feels good to return to them, right? We have an inherent desire to live around beauty. Uh, And this is the job of artists and designers. And contemporary art and the contemporary art world are pretending that it's not our responsibility. And the public is responding in ways that can sometimes be thought of as rube or, or annoying as like, my kid could draw that will great let him draw that you know it's not it's not it's not a very profound statement but it does have some some underlying truth that i think the contemporary art world would be it would be wise of them to pay a little bit of attention to that because those same people you know when they walk in the moma being frustrated as i've seen them do they walk 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 around the moma and they're frustrated and then suddenly they're lucky enough to bump up against the monet and then suddenly it looks like a lake, you know, and they're like, oh, OK, here, like, I get it. Here's the sea. Right. There's a lake. I, this is water. Like, I get it. Right. And that's not lame. You know, the, the fact that, that that people are looking for that and looking for a beautiful representation of things that are around us. That's everything. Right. When you're thinking about like the best novels, the best novels are not abstract novels right? It's not just words that mean nothing. It's stories about people doing things, right? It's not lame to be attracted to, hey, this looks like the environment I know. looks like I could be standing there, but this is a more beautiful representation of that mountain. I've never seen that mountain done that way. I've never seen that river done that way. I've never seen that face done that way. You know, that's what we expect a great novelist to do. That's what we expect great TV to do, right? TV is about big surprise, people. 90% of TV shows are either about people or about animals behaving as people. Like, come on, to pretend that this is not the main interest of humanity, the things around us and us, to me, is like you're playing in fantasy land. You really, really, really are. And I hope it stops. I hope it stops. I I mean, there's room in my heart for all the contemporary art. And I just hope that there will be room in the hearts of of mainstream galleries for the stuff that we're trying to do. Yeah. All right. Well, those are her questions. Thank you for 
Excellent. Yeah. Thank you for reading those out, Emily, to, to anybody yeah. who didn't understand this. This was a, um, these were questions that were submitted ahead of time by somebody who lives in a time zone that does not thank allow you. them to attend here live. Uh, so Emily is helping me out by, by reading those out. And Emily, I'm going to mute you now, but if you have questions of yourself, please be, feel free to raise your hand again, because I'm sure you're going to have unbelievably insight, insightful things to ask. And Abby, you're live. Hey, Ken. Thanks for doing this tonight. Oh, I'm happy to do it. Thank you for attending. Well, hey, my... I guess my biggest burning question today is I've been seeing a lot of artists using aluminum panels and they're gorgeous. The the way the oil looks on these aluminum panels is just beautiful. Do you use aluminum panels? Have you, and do you have any suggestions or recommendations? I started digging into it. It's like, oh man, there's tons of different coatings that are on them. And I wouldn't even know where to begin without investing a ton of money into it. Mm. Okay. That's an easy question. I've never tried, (laughs) never tried it. Uh, And also, you know, for me, I, I tend to, whenever I have an attraction to something, how it looks, you know, visually, I, I just literally do my best to understand how that exact effect happened. Right. So let's say you saw something online that you're saying, oh, that looked compelling. I like how that looks like, you know, the best thing you can do is try to message that person and ask, how did you coat your panel? You know, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm telling that to you now because and, and I'm having like flashbacks of millions of these kinds of questions coming my way. But I, I, I try my best to help out because that's kind of the best way to learn. Even when I go in museums, right, and I look at something that Rembrandt did or something that Velasquez did. And I say to myself, man, that's so beautiful. I literally try in my mind, yeah, to ask, how did Rembrandt do that? And I put my nose up against the canvas because I know Rembrandt ain't answering anytime soon until the guards like pull me off the canvas. (laughs) And and I'm trying to understand which color went on first, which color went on second. Did he use any medium? Did he use any solvent? Like all of these, all of these questions are really really important. And so it's great that you're it's great that you're doing the research, but uh it seems to me like you're also testifying that you're 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 falling prey to the internet and the internet gives you as they say everything all of the time, <laughs> right? That's what you get. Yeah. You're like oh, yeah. how to use this this and then 10,000 yeah. <laughs> different ways of doing it. And 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 it's very likely that, you know, most of these will not apply to you, not because they are the wrong way of doing things, but because that's not that's not what drew you into trying this in the first place. What drew you in uh-huh. is you saw a piece or two and you thought, that's killer. That should yeah. be enough. You know, that should be enough. It's like, hey, man, did you cover this up in a special way or whatever? And they're like, yeah, here's what I use. You know, uh-huh. you try it. And if it works for you, move on. Because, you know, we only live once based on most religions, right? We only live once. And so I prefer to take the time to actually paint as opposed to like sitting in front of a computer and like oh, figuring yeah. out all, <laughs> all the potential variations that can happen when you're, when you're working on a, on an aluminum panel. Um, and you know, the majority of the time, if, if the source that's giving you this information is, is reputable, whatever, you know, try it. If it doesn't work for you, then change it. Like, let's say your, your, your first article that comes up is from the art renewal center. You're like, okay, reputable source. So 
they say I should coat it with this material and do two coats. Okay, you try it. Two options. A, it works great. Fantastic. You don't need to look for anything anymore. Two, it doesn't work really well. Then that the tree kind of starts to open up and then you ask yourself, okay, it didn't work very well. Why? Oh, it was too smooth. Okay, let's change for a gesso that has more tooth. Or, oh, it, 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 it dried up matte and I wanted it to be glossy. Oh, okay, let's look for an alternative that dries differently, right? So that way, when you're adjusting the way that you're working with your materials, it's, it's in contact with your aesthetic preference, right? Your aesthetic preference and your temperamental t- preference. Because there's a question, let's say, that I get all the time. I love working on wood, right? I love, I love working on wood with shellac. And then people ask me, isn't the wood too smooth? And it's like, that's not a question because too smooth for whom, right? I love working on a smooth surface. And then the person comes back and say, well, I don't like working on smooth surface. And I'm like, great. You see, we're building this idea of personal style as we speak. My style and my temperament is completely, uh, you know, is um, what's that English word? It's complementary, you know, with smooth surfaces. But you have a different temperament and you require something more textural, fantastic. And then even within that texture, you know, you can have fine linen, rough linen, right? A lot of texture, a little bit of texture. So these questions about art supplies, they, they, they aren't real questions. It's, it's the question should be reflected back at you. And I should be asking you, how do you like working? Yeah. That's one. How do you like working? when this, this has to do with your temperament and your tools. Like if you told me, Ken, you know, I love working mostly with bristle brushes. I would tell you, Hey, if you're working mostly with bristle brushes and you hope to apply paint to metal, you know, get ready for an adventure because right. you really need softer brushes. Otherwise you're just going to create these crazy streak marks that are going to be just, you know, pretty hazardous for your, for, for, for the film of the paint. But if you tell me, yeah, I love those sable brushes. I'm like, go for those metallic surfaces, go for them. Or alternatively, I would tell you, if you want to maintain your affection for bristle brushes and still work on a metallic surface, then maybe look for a kind of gesso that creates a texture. You know, mm-hmm. even if, do you know what I mean? So the answer yeah. really has yeah. to be, you have to ask within your own heart, like who am I yeah. as a painter and what kind of stuff do I appreciate visually? And what kind of work do I like to do when I slink paint around? Right. Oh, that's, that's perfect. And definitely reflecting back on myself. Nice way to spin it around. I felt like that was very therapeutic of you. <laughs> I, I wasn't even, I didn't even know where I was going with it, but I'm, I'm, right. ha- I'm, ha- I'm happy we, we found, we found a place of agreement. Do you have any follow-up or maybe different questions? Um, No follow-up on that one, but I guess I do have another question on getting into a more of a career as an artist and fo- focusing on that aspect of it suggestions, recommendations, tips, like what's a good way to get out there and start bringing people in and getting your artwork out there. So people see it, they know you're there. You're not just selling to your friends and family. (laughs) How do you stop selling to just friends and family? Wow. So there's so many, that's, I love, I love (laughs) this. I love this question because it really relates to the previous question. And Mm -hmm. I feel like, I feel like, okay, I'm going to drop a truth bomb then everybody's going to feel kind of shattered and then we're all going to collectively kind of get over it. So most artists, vast majority of artists 
let me go and I'll even go as far as say vast majority of good artists don't make a living just by doing art until they're like in their 50s. And this is true based on, you know, more than anecdotal data. You know, I have friends in the field. The majority of us have some kind of other job. And the reason for that is because building a reputation as an artist that allows you to sell consistently and sell for good prices just takes a long time, realistically speaking. Of course, you know, and I, you, you've come, I don't know if you've come to the right place, right? But I am like the, re, the, the realistic person, both when it comes to like making realistic paintings and when it comes to like realistically <laughs> talking about these subjects. So realistically speaking, like I wouldn't be able to make a living if I didn't also teach. Right. So for me, I make money by selling artwork, but I also make money uh, by teaching, you know, so that's a competitive edge that I have. So when I walked into this career, I had to ask myself, okay, assuming I'm not going to make money exclusively selling art for at least, you know, a few more good years, what am I going to do in the meantime? And I think that's that's a very important question, because once you answer that in a satisfying way that you can kind of live with and be and be content it kind of frees you up from having to do all this like art business thing and and this art business thing don't get me wrong it's very very important but it could also completely pollute your art and i've seen people go down that road you know they make the art they know they can sell and to me you know even if they make more money than me that to me is a poisonous way to be an artist because they go to art fairs and they make, you know, paintings of butterflies and ice cream and whatever it is that people want to put on their walls, cats, right? And great, you know, that kind of stuff sells. But uh, but if you want to make art that is significant for yourself, you have to know that that comes at a risk that people won't immediately get it, right? They won't immediately get it. So I very strongly suggest that if you're if you're getting into this career, think about what it is that you can kind of do. I wouldn't even say on the side because because for me, you know, the the teaching is such a fundamental part of what I view art as 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 doing, right? So for for example, I how do I even think about it? So for me being an artist, right? What I really want to be doing as an artist is to advance the production of high quality, aesthetically significant objects in the world. If I do them, or if my students do them, I sleep well at night, right? So if I, you know, if I, if I can't paint every day of the week because some days of the week I teach, that's still great for me because, hey, my students are getting better. They're learning how to paint. And I go to sleep happy thinking, man, I've, I've advanced culture in some positive way. Now, other other friends of mine, you know, they do other things. Some do graphic design. Some do set designs for theater and movies. You know, there's other ways to use your, your creative abilities that will provide you with a more sustainable income until you can build your reputation uh, and your brand or whatever it is we're calling it these days. Um, but but yeah, that 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 part of the gig is so much more about like PR and connections and getting to know the right people which I admit I'm not great at. I'm not great at. So I'm, I'm taking my time with it. And if any of you who are listening to this podcast anytime in the future, 
are great PR people and you want to like hook me up or if you're a great gallery owner and you love my work, you know where to find me. <laughs> so like that's, we each kind of like have to make our own way in the world. And, and, and this career is a, like a stormy, stormy sea to navigate. And so you make sure that you have some kind of anchor if you need it. That's my, that's my truth bomb. That's great. Thank you, Ken. I appreciate it. You're welcome. All right. So we're going to continue. So Diana, you are live. Hello. Hi. I'm speaking you from Lima, Peru. Well, I have two questions. Um, one of them is I have seen you uh, have um, great knowledge of uh, color theory. And although I have seen you paint like um, realistic skin tones and you've already talked about it, Uh, I am very interested and interested and can't paint or can't think of painting um, like those paintings where you have the face um, with purples and blues and greens. And I love how they look. And I would love to make some of uh, that paintings, but I can't think that way to paint. And I've tried sometimes to put some colors on, on the skin Um, I love painting um, nudes, so um, female, the female body. And I am trying to apply those crazy colors on, on the figures, but it's not that easy to me to, to think that way. And although I've seen you paint more realistic tones, um, maybe you can help me uh, uh, figure it out. Well, I love, I, love, I love most of what you're talking about, except for the accusation that I paint realistic skin tones. Because I think, <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think no, no, no. I think, I, think, I think I know exactly what you mean. And I also think that to some extent, at least in some paintings that I do, when, I, when they're not master copies, when they're master copies, I try to be fairly loyal to the person who I'm learning from. But in my own practice, I totally share your feelings and your and your preferences when when it comes to that and i do think at least for me the key to making these things work is confidence in color theory Col like a lot of confidence in color theory because uh i can kind of give you the intro to how to get around making these crazy changes um but it really would totally help if you immerse yourself in uh in in color theory studiousness and i think here would be a good time to plug the fact that i have a good color theory video and i put it on the two dollar tier of patreon so anybody listening to this right now I'm should on know that. I'm on that one. yeah yeah yeah. so I'm everybody look for it <laughs> oh you haven't found it okay so good stuff are ahead of you so in so i basically you know this didn't used to be part of the two dollar tier but it now is because it's literally a public surface announcement right everybody should be seeing that It's an intro to color theory, and um, that that should really go a long way uh, when it comes to like explaining explaining the things that we're going to be discussing. But let me just still address your question and give you some um, basic guidelines that I think about when it comes to pushing color. We're going to call this idea pushing color. You take something that isn't necessarily blue and you ah, you make it more blue or you make it more purple, right? So what I think the way that I think about it is like this. So basically the structure of what makes anything realistic is value, right? The degree to which a color is either dark or light. 
So think about a black and white photograph. In a black and white photograph, we feel the dimensionality. It looks totally 3D. We feel that it has weight. We feel that it has a sense of space. All those things are achieved by obeying values alone, right? And all the other elements of color being hue and chroma, these two elements have very little to do with creating a sense of realism. They are more kind of like, if you use them right, they will supplement the realism. And if you use them wrong, they're going to detract from it. But within a very solid value structure, like the darks are as dark as they need to be and they're where they need to be. And same said for the light. Once you are very comfortable with creating value hierarchies that work, then you can really push color. So for example, I'm going to obey the rules of value and saying that area of my portrait or that figure is going to be value eight or value nine, meaning like it's as light as it needs to be. And then within that value, I'm going to make it more colorful. Or instead of making it green, I'm going to make it blue because it fits better with my composition. You are going to be more able to make these color uh, decisions, these creative decisions, and keep your feeling of three-dimensionality if those don't compromise your value structure. And when you're just starting out, it's incredibly difficult to keep values in mind when you're thinking about color because you're like, I want to make it purple. I want to make it orange. I want to make it blue. And all these things are bouncing around in your head and you have to slow down and think, hold on. Okay, great. It's going to be purple. Sounds fantastic. But how dark? How dark? That's the first question. How dark to how light? Right. And once you answer that question and you say, okay, I'm going to make it into a crazy purple and I'm going to make it the craziest purple that I possibly can within value four, within value four, within a given value that it needs to be. The more you obey the rules of light and dark, the more it frees you up uh, to be much more creative uh, with the other properties of color that you're applying. And this goes like the hierarchy goes something like, The more you obey value, the more you can be a little bit loose with chroma and hue. And if you obey both value and chroma, you can go crazy with hue and nobody's going to fault you for that. So that's kind of like my hierarchy. So if you can obey chroma and value and you go wild with the hue, you're going to make crazy cool paintings that still feel fairly realistic. That's, That's just one. That's one thing. I have another thing for you. I hope that's not overwhelming. Um, no, no, no. I'm taking notes. <laughs> okay, good, good, good. So the second thing that I have is, are you familiar to some extent with uh, with uh, with what complementary colors are about? No. Yeah. Okay. She's nodding, but I'm going to, I'm going to just give a slight summary because people are going to be listening to this and they're going to be like, that Ken didn't say anything about what he's talking about. So um, complementary colors in a num in a nutshell are sets of colors broadly defined as there's three broad sets. I know there's like some scientific discussion about how it's not exactly accurate, but historically they've been red and green, blue and orange, and yellow and violet. These sets of colors, uh, they, they come in pairs and they actually have the influence that if you, if you, they amplify each other when they're in close proximity. So if you want to make something feel more yellow, you put it up against the violet that both of them are going to feel crazy intense. And if you mix them on the palette, 
they do the opposite. They neutralize each other, right? So you can think about them as kind of like opposites, right? So when you put something very dark up against something that's very light, they're going to intensify each other. But when you mix them together, you get a middle, right? They neutralize each other. So that's the relationship of complementary colors. So what I sometimes do when I want to push color is I use that, right? So if I want to make something feel more red, I don't necessarily bring up the chroma of that red, but maybe it's more subtle and elusive if I take the environment of that red and push it towards green. You know what I mean? So if I put that red in a green environment, then it's going to feel much more red without me having to go crazy and paint it redder than it should be, right? So you can be super sneaky with it and you can make a lot of these moves, for example, with background colors. If you're painting, a, a, let's say, a gray wall, a gray wall could be anything. So there could be some areas of that wall that are purple, some areas of that wall that are orange, and you can use that creatively to make certain colors pop when you want them to. And that goes really, really nicely with also gray values that you find within the figure. So the figure has a lot of gray areas, a ton. And if you're not seeing those gray areas, you got to start opening up those history books because Rubens is going to show you. Look at Rubens and look at Jacques-Louis David. They're really great at really uh, making it clear what areas of the body are liable to be very, very, very gray. So if you look at those gray areas and you understand that that gray is usually kind of open to interpretation, maybe instead of making those areas next to it more yellowish, you take that gray and amp up the violet nature of that gray. If you take that gray towards violet, everything around it is going to feel more yellow. If you take that gray towards blue, then everything around it is going to feel more orange. You take that gray towards green, everything around it is going to feel more red. So there's a lot of sneaky business that you can do in order to push color around uh, without necessarily going crazy on your palette. And that's the kind of color trickery that I just, I'm a sucker for because I want it to feel like you look from you look from far away and you're like, that red is crazy. Then you walk up close and you're like, that red's not crazy. So what's going on here? And that's magic. That's magic. Because you don't want to ask, don't want to say, oh, that red is crazy. And then you walk up close and it's like cadmium straight out of the tube. Uh, <laughs> eh, bummer, bummer, <laughs> right? So you want to you be sneakier than that, trickier than that. And uh, using the the after image effect, which is what we've been talking about, I think is a more subtle and sophisticated way to go about it. And I can close with a beautiful quote from Degas. Degas says, the art of painting is making a touch of Venetian red look like vermilion. And that's what's up. You know, Venetian red is a low chroma muted red. Vermilion is this bright popping red. If you can make Venetian red look like vermilion based on the environment into which you put that Venetian red, now you're a painter. Now you're playing the painter's game. Does that make sense? <laughs> I'm going to try it, definitely. Fantastic. Um, I have one more question, if that's okay. Of course. Um, also, I've seen you in the master classes do the, um, uh, the layer thing uh, where um, when you paint, uh, first paint in grays. Mm -hmm. And then you put like veils of color. Um, I know it's it's like uh, an ancient technique or something, but uh, do you recommend now doing um, doing uh, um, portrait uh, that way or I because I don't do it like that. I just um, paint like um, 
the figure in one, one color, like the background, uh, to use it like a first layer. And then I put the colors um, on top. So mm. which, which way would you say it's better or would you recommend? I love that question because it, it allows me to expand broadly on my, on my other because views about aesthetics. It's two different ways of, of painting, really. Yeah. And my answer to that is there's more than two ways, right? There's way, way more yeah, than two definitely. ways of painting. And what you should be picking is the approach that delivers the kind of aesthetic impact that you're looking for. So working with glazes on top of a grisaille, which is what you were talking about, has a kind of feel has a kind of feel to it. It has advantages and disadvantages, but more importantly, it has an aesthetic flavor, right? That's like what you're telling me. It's kind of like, I've seen you cook with cinnamon, but I prefer to cook with nutmeg. Do you think cooks <laughs> should use cinnamon and not nutmeg? I'm like, that depends on what they're cooking, <laughs> right? So there are there are paintings where I want that flavor of glaze on top of a grisaille because it, it looks a certain way. And sometimes that really works for me. So I go that way. And in other paintings, you know, if you want to paint like Sargent, forget about it, right? There are kinds of paintings if, that, that if you want to go and hit that aesthetic convention, then... Painting with a grisaille and then and then glazing on it is just going to totally ruin what you're trying to do. So what I recommend is try it, see what it does, see how it looks, and then understand, okay, that's cinnamon. So I can use cinnamon in some paintings, and in some paintings when it doesn't work, I won't use cinnamon. And I'll go as far as saying that for me, something that I look for in art is within the same frame, within the same canvas, numerous variations of technique, right? I love seeing that. I love seeing that inside of the same painting, I see, oh, I can feel that area was done with glazing, but oh, that other area is totally directly painted. And oh, this other area, I see the dry brush. And oh, here I see that he worked with a palette knife. Balancing all these ingredients, now you have a meal, right? You have the salad. You know, you have the dessert that has cinnamon and then you have the main dish that has nutmeg or whatever. You know, the thing about paintings is that for me personally, and I, I'll be happy to advocate for that uh, for you guys when if you, if you want. But for me, a painting, if it was done with spectacular technique, but it's the same technique all over the place, boring for me. It's I don't like that. And that's that's personally why. I take some issues with some of Sargent's work, which gets me into trouble when I have to argue with other painters and whatever. I, I, I welcome the debate, right? And it's, it's a problem that I have sometimes with some of Richard Schmidt's work because to me, it's like, okay, you're great at nutmeg, but like, I can't taste any more nutmeg. It's like, it, I just like my taste buds are dying. So I want to see some areas painted this way, other areas done that way. Because to me, it's just it's just tastier to look at. And somebody who really does this in spectacular fashion is, is uh, Vincent Desiderio. Oh, my God. He was on the podcast a few episodes ago. And the man is a demon, right? You look at his work. And some areas are done in, in, in one technique and other areas are done in completely, you know, seemingly irreconcilable techniques, you know, but he makes these things come together. And to me, that's, that's really, really what makes a painting super successful. It's like, we, let's go back to the soccer analogy. If you have a soccer player 
who can only kick in one direction, it's like, that's not the best soccer player. No, it's so what I recommend for you very strongly is learn the technique, understand what visual effect it creates, and then choose wisely where you want to incorporate it based on aesthetic preferences, not based on like, that's the way to go, dogma. I'm not about that. Let's make paintings that are beautiful. Somebody's asking Vincent who? Vincent Desiderio. Uh, I don't know how to spell it off the top of my head, but you can DM me on Patreon. I'll, I'll send you the spelling. Anything else? Just one, one tiny little... More. Go for it. We're not, we're not pressed for <laughs> oh, time. You mentioned, um, when we started, you mentioned um, about you didn't recommend to paint from pictures, but right. um, and, and I understand uh, why uh, you explained, but... Um, In my case, since I paint uh, female nude figures, it's it's kind of <laughs> hard to to get uh, many friends of mine to pose. So I, I paint from pictures. And I have um, some books of um, erotic photographs that are awesome that I use to paint, but they are black and white. And I love that they are black and white because they give me the chance to, to paint the colors that I I believe uh, are good. Um, you mentioned also that the problem with that was uh, the variation on, on values on lights and darks. If I have only that reference to paint, how can I um, make that difference of, of values if, if, if that's my, my reference? Lots in I, there. I lots, if, lots in there. Lots in there. Lots in there. If the light, how how can I tell? Okay, I put two, three tones, two values of light when I am using uh, pictures. Okay, many things there. First Last one, I promise. First, first, <laughs> no, no, no. It's fine. It's fine. I just want to make sure that I take them in in organized fashion. Okay, thank you. First thing, there's a very big difference with when it comes to working from photography. And in general, if you're making paintings for your artistic production or to improve at painting, these two projects, to a huge extent, are, are in opposition to each other. They're in opposition to each other. Think about what it takes when you learn piano. When you learn piano, you sit and do boring stuff. You sit there and you do, oh, here's another Bach. Right? That's what you do. And then you're like, okay, what does Mozart have in store for me today? And you sit there and you're not being very creative. <laughs> you're just learning, right? And the more of that boring stuff you do, the better you're going to get at making your creative work, right? If I, I studied guitar and I studied bass, right? So at first I learned solo by Jimmy Page and by Jimi Hendrix and by Brian May and, and the great guitar players. And then later when I'm on stage, okay, now I have the skills to invent something that is new, that is something that is original. But I would have never gotten to this level of confidence and skill without the work of the masters. Without the, without, you couldn't get me to play those solos if I didn't study very rigorously Jimi Hendrix's work, right? So for you, it sounds like there's a conflation. You're talking to me, here is how I make my artistic work How can I improve in my skills? And I'm like, these two things don't, it's not even the same activity. So you should make sure as an artist for yourself, for your own good, that you separate them. Separate, when you're making something artistic, don't expect to learn much. 
And when you're making something in order to learn and grow, don't expect to be too creative, right? And so if you want to get better at painting female nudes and knowing the kind of colors that go into that, well, you go into the history books, right? <laughs> and you copy those female nudes. Even Picasso did that. And Picasso was very original, right? Even Francis Bacon copied Velasquez. Goya copied Velasquez. Velasquez copied Rubens. Rubens copied Titian. Degas copied Holbein. Like this kind of stuff is very common. So if you want to learn something, you tell yourself whatever out of every, if you have three days a week when you're in the studio, one of those days at least has to be a study day. Otherwise, you are what they call stagnant. You're not moving forward. You know, if you want to push your skills forward, you have to designate days when you're doing work that is not creative, that is not necessarily interesting and fun, but that is educational. And that kind of work is going to teach you how to deal with really difficult references. Like, for example, of course, I hate photography and I don't recommend photography for learning. But if this is the kind of reference that you can get for your artistic production, heck, use whatever you can get, right? I have a commission right now for which I'm using a photograph, right? Because the model, you know, I, I spent all the time that I had with the model. Now I got to finish it from a photo. What am I going to do? Say this painting <laughs> can't be finished. You know, I have to work from a photograph. But let me tell you this. I'm able to work successfully from a photograph because of the skills that I built. Right now, I look at a photograph and I tell myself, man, that color is a lame color. That color does not belong here. This is something that the photography has twisted and ruined. But I have this bank of information that I've learned from having studied the masters of the past. And now I can just overcome all these obstacles that <laughs> photography presents, right? So what I'm saying is, if for your artistic practice, you're using photos, fantastic. Just don't put them into your study. Don't, don't, like, don't pretend that when you're having fun eating a burger, this is when you're eating your salad. Ah. No, right? These are separate things. Great, have fun, eat a burger, but let's also eat our salad. Now, when it comes to, now I'm going to assume you're spending enough time to build up your skills. And now let's talk about your artistic production and deal with those photographic references. So if you're working with a black and white photograph, all you have is values. So that's great. You have, in, in, a, in a black and white photograph, you have all the value information you could ever hope for because you know, Where are the darks? Where are the lights? How dark are things? How light are things? The, the, the whole spectrum of light to dark is available for you inside of the black and white photograph. Now, if you're going to choose to make up interesting colors and cast them into this template, that's fantastic. Just make sure that whatever it is you mix, purples, greens, oranges, make them as dark or as light as the dark black and white photograph suggests. And that way you're going to maintain a feeling of three-dimensionality, but also go crazy and wild uh, as you are, as you are, you know, as your ambition leads you. Does that, does that answer your questions? Yeah, it kind of does. Yes. Okay. Yes. Any follow-up or are we, or <laughs> no. have I exhausted you? <laughs> maybe later. No, maybe later. I'll keep, I'll keep thinking of another question. Thank Sounds you very good. much. Of course. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. So... Tika, you are live. Hi. Hi. Um, so I'm coming from a background in botanical illustration and watercolor. So your very deliberate teaching style is really complementary to kind of that watercolor aesthetic. Um, 
and that's really helpful to me. So my question is, um, botanical illustrators tend to make all of these study pages because they do a lot of uh, drawing from life and colors from life. Um, and so can you talk about the process you go through before you put like the charcoal and paint to what will be your final surface? Like what do your study pages look like? Ooh, <laughs> yeah. So definitely, definitely. I can definitely talk to that. I just have to, um, to say that there is a, there is a fundamental difference between uh, what you guys do with watercolor and what I do when I work with oil and when I work with charcoal is that I have an easier life because I can erase, right? I can backtrack. (laughs) I can take, I can take back decisions uh, in a way that watercolor artists cannot do. So this, this affords me with, with a lot of flexibility. And for that purpose, what I do when I, when I sketch is something that is very, how to explain it? The sketches that I do are always meant to answer some kind of concrete question. Like, let's say I'm going to go paint a painting of a person and I want to ask myself, how will the color of the background work with the color of the shirt? Right? Open question. I don't know. So I take a sketch. Usually this is the kind of sketch that I would do in pastel. Right? So I would take a past- like my set of pastels and, you know, kind of sketch it out in a way that's completely loose and that is only focused on this question. So you would see something that looks kind of like this. This is not pastel, but... I'm showing a palette knife sketch, people. If you're just listening audio, just imagine something super sloppy in terms of the the details, but that is very accurate in terms of the colors or as accurate as I was able to make it. Uh, and this is a Raphael composition, right? So here in this in this composition, what we're looking for is how are the colors working together? And because the question can, I can't answer all the questions at once. So here, if I spend any time working on fingers and noses and eyes, that would be a huge waste of my time and won't advance at all the kind of question that I have in mind for this particular sketch. So this sketch is about colors. So I would have these kinds of color sketches that totally ignore uh, geometry and details and these things. And then I would have other sketches where, for example, I would want to know, man, but how does that eye really look like? And for that, I would probably use just graphite pencil and I would just rigorously study the shapes, just the angles and the shapes and no color whatsoever. And then I could, for example, ask myself questions about the frame. Should this be 30 by 24 or maybe 24 by 20, right? Do I want it to be a very elongated format, something that's closer to a square? So for that, I'll probably use charcoal because in charcoal, I can quickly block out my frame and see both of these frames manifested as complete pieces within 30 minutes, because I can very easily do a 15-minute charcoal sketch of the entire composition. And then I can see, oh, okay, what kind of frame do I want? Do I want this frame? Do I want that frame? Do I want that frame? So whenever I start a project, the project starts with many question marks with regards to how I want this painting to be. And each of those questions can be answered with a different kind of sketch, with a different kind of medium that is directly trying to answer that very pointed question. And once I don't have any questions anymore, I know my format. I know how the colors are going to work together. I understand the geometric relationships between the things that are difficult to measure. Then, um, you know, no more excuses. <laughs> then I kind of have to put the canvas on the easel and get to work. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you. You're welcome. Any other questions? 
if you were, I do have one, which is, um, and I kind of asked this on Patreon about um, the, the materials that we need for the chalk pastel class. Um, as somebody just starting out, would you recommend, or do you have a recommendation for um, what kind of a paint palette? Like I want to buy all the colors, but I also am not a millionaire. So what would you, just a few that you would start out with? Okay, great question. Many people ask this question in, in a less productive way than the one that you have just now. Um, but I'm going to ask you to um, narrow it down a little bit more. So sure. what are you, let's put it this way. If I had to give you a narrow palette for painting portraits, it wouldn't be the same palette as for painting landscapes. Right? These, th th these things are yeah. very different colors. So maybe you can give us a little bit of insight into what you're hoping to accomplish with this palette. And then let's say, then I'll try to come up with recommendations. Sure. So as one of your patrons on Patreon, I'm mostly following you and you do a lot, a lot of portraiture. And so maybe, maybe what you would recommend if we're following along with your lessons and able mm. to, um, able to kind of pick up where you're starting. Yeah. Okay, good. So in terms of portraits and figure work, the most comprehensive um, limited palette that I think is known to man is the notorious Zorn palette. Uh, Zorn palette is, is, is named Zorn palette after Anders Zorn, who's a European painter, uh, 19th century killer painter, super, super good. And he has made this palette famous by taking very, very few pigments and uh, making them sing, basically. And there, that's a, it's a really good palette for doing uh, figurative work. You can see the sergeant behind me is done in that in that palette, and the palette is um, flake white. But you can you can use titanium because flake white or Kremnitz white they're fairly expensive. But I mean, if you want to invest in Kremnitz or flake, that's that's fine. But otherwise, use titanium, ivory black, yellow ochre, and cadmium red light. I have on Patreon several lessons that are actually focused on this palette and demonstrating this palette uh, with with comprehensive explanations on why the palette is built as it is that kind of exceed what I can do with just audio because I kind of need to show it on, on the palette. But if you if you're looking for those lessons on Patreon, just DM me and I'll I'll send you to to check them out. Uh, another set of really fun palettes that are even more limited. Um, but I think those are really excellent exercises for developing your color theory knowledge is working with just white and a set of complementary colors. Like for example, white and then some kind of red and some kind of green uh, or some kind of orange and some kind of blue. For example, white, burnt sienna and ultramarine blue is a great palette for painting people. Or here we have one. Let's see this one. This one also is on Patreon. So this one is burnt sienna, viridian green, and white. There's a lot you can do. A lot you can do because a set of complementary colors allows you to, they, they neutralize each other, right? And if one of those complementary colors is either a red or an orange, like burnt sienna or Venetian red, then you get burnt sienna, which is a reddish orange. And because you have ultramarine blue, you're able to create 
everything from this orangey red to a complete gray. And that is so much to work with when it comes to painting people. So I also have lessons about these two palettes. They're also on Patreon. So if you're, yeah, I don't know, because, you know, you're asking me questions that are at the core of my practice, right? So I'm definitely invested in painting people, definitely invested in painting portraits, and definitely, definitely, definitely invested in finding, you know, the right colors to both succeed at painting and also to assign to students so that they can expand their understandings about those pigments. So all those limited color, limited color palette stuff, email me or send me a DM on Patreon. I'll, I'll send you to all the lessons where I, oh, here's, here's another one right here. Um, to anybody who's listening audio and like, it's excruciating for you guys. I'm slightly sorry, but also like be on my Q and a when it's happening live, it's just $2. So if you're not here, you know, bear, bear with me. Um, let me just grab this one off the wall. Here we go. So this one, if you can see, that's burnt sienna, black and white. That's it. Just burnt sienna, okay. black, black and white. That. You see, so there's all that there is in here is variations on grays and all the way to red, right? Everything between red and gray. And of course, because we have black and white, we have maximum value control because we have all the lightest lights, all the darkest light and all the darkest darks. And everything that's happening between that and a saturated burnt sienna gives us, you know, you look at this face and you don't think, oh man, I'm missing a million colors. And that's, that's just a factor of knowing how to navigate uh, the colors that are on your palette and making sure that they are balanced in relation to each other. Um, so, so yeah, when it comes to that, that, that totally delivers. So one second, let me just put this aside. Okay. So if we are preparing your shopping list, we said black, we said white, we said ochre, we said cadmium red light. That's the only expensive pigment here. That's the Zorn palette. And then for more limited palettes, you can get Viridian green, ultramarine blue, cheap pigments, burnt sienna, Venetian red, cheap pigments. So we're, we're, we're at Perfect. eight. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Love the question. All right. Ellen, you're live. Hi, Ken. How's it going? Good to hear from good. you. Good, good. Uh, your trip was good? My, my trip was, uh, I have mixed feelings about my trip. <laughs> it's like, uh, it was great to be, to be there and to meet family and meet friends. But let's just say dealing with immigration logistics in the age of COVID is not recommended. Don't, don't do it, you guys. It's not fun. So if you're not an American citizen, stay in the country right now. Well, luckily I am. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, so my question is about um, the uh, pastel supply. Mm -hmm. uh, are all the pastels behind you, are those paper pa uh, pastels? They are all soft pastels. Um, I have multiple sets here. And the thing about pastels is like, Unlike oil or most kind of mediums where it's like once you get a better kind of paint, you kind of put the bad paint in your past. I don't find that it is that way with pastels. So I have like my student grade pastel that I'm still using. And then I have my fancy pastels that I just got. And for me, it's like they all just 
accumulate into the pastel family of pastels that I collect because in pastel, unlike in oil, mixing colors is, is well, you're going to see how we deal with that when it comes to the pastel workshops, but it's really better to have more colors around, even if it's like cheap pastels that you've gotten in the past and just kind of keep them, keep them all. So as long as it's not oil pastels, because those, those can be a bummer to try to mix with soft pastels, as long as they're chalk, you know, soft pastels, um, I would just use everything that you got, everything. Okay. Unfortunately, I've given most of my pastels away because um, I find they're so dusty and I have some upper respiratory issues. So mm. I wasn't, you know, I thought, well, I'll give them up and went into oil. Well, but, you know, oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Well, you know what I think? It's like, I usually, I usually say that, and, and I will say that when we, when we do the workshop is I kind of feel like the benefit of these workshops is more like getting to see somebody who at least pretends to know what they're doing. That somebody would be me and seeing how I deal with, uh, with the challenges of the medium and how I choose to resolve all these issues and listening to all these explanations that, that I have. And only then think about whether or not you want to draw along with me, not draw along with me. And I, I've derived this, this philosophy from how I studied, you know, when I studied, my teachers would demo and I would drop everything I was doing and just watch them like a hawk and ask them all the questions in the world. Then later I would go home. I would let all this information kind of marinate and I would devise a lot of conclusions from that. And I, I strongly believe that that is an excellent way to learn. So I'm sure that even if you don't choose to purchase any new pastels and you just sit there and watch me draw and explain what I'm doing, you're going to learn a lot of stuff that you can apply not only to pastel, but to other mediums too. And then at the end of the workshop, you can decide whether or not you want to buy a new pastel kit or not. But it's primarily, like these workshops are primarily geared towards providing you guys with knowledge. And most of this knowledge is not just one medium specific, right? There's a lot of things that you would learn from this pastel workshop that is also applicable to other stuff, right? So I would, if I were you, if you are hesitant about buying pastels, I would say, don't buy pastels, come to the workshop, learn what there is to be learned from it. Think about whether or not you want to buy pastels after you've done it. That, that would be my my recommendation. Okay, I'll do that. And uh, the truth is that I never work while I'm watching a demo. Yeah, that's the way to go. That's the way to go, definitely. Because uh, whenever whenever people are like painting along while I'm demoing, I'm always perplexed because I think to myself, what? <laughs> I have no multitasking ability to do any of that. So if I'm painting and I'm trying to listen to somebody else paint, even if I hear everything that they're saying, there's like no way that I can see everything they're doing because by definition, if I'm painting, I'm looking at my own canvas. And so much of the time, you know, I remember from demos that I would watch back when I was when I was studying, so many things I picked up without my teachers knowing that they just taught me something. 
right? It could be something very simple from just the way that my teacher would move the brush or just the kind of colors that they would select. And they wouldn't stop and say, here's a very significant brush work that I'm about to make, boom, and do the brush. They wouldn't like announce it. But for me, some of those brush works were just unbelievably educational. And I would watch them and learn so much from them just from being in the zone and focused on whatever it was that they were doing. So all the other students in the class who weren't, you know, glued to the demo were always a source of, of um, great uh, pre- perplexation. How would you say that? <laughs> it made me question, made me question. So I'm happy to hear that we're in agreement on that. Yes. And I'm very happy you're back. Me too. Me too. I'm super happy to be back. Thank you, Ellen. Any more questions? No, that's it. Okay. Of course. Emily, you're live. Hey. Okay. I'm not trying to take over, but I noticed. No, 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 no. Emily, to anybody who's new, Emily, Emily, you're going to get to know Emily because she's going to be moderating our upcoming workshops and she moderated our previous workshops. And we're all grateful for any time that that Emily Emily is uh you know kind of steering this ship so what you got there for us I love it okay well i'm wondering is there anything that you learned as a kid um in your art classes as a kid or anything that you wish that you learned like kind of elementary age as i'm preparing my um classes for the next fall and and everything i'm just curious if there's anything that you think I should be sharing with my students or um, anything you would have benefited from or yeah. Oh my God. So wait, is this, is this question one that can be framed? What would you do if you had a group of kids kind of question? Yes. I've, I've got oh, okay. a group of kids. So Great. this is something that's like super on my mind because not from personal experience, because as a kid, I don't think I learned too much, you know, stuff that's like productive uh, when it comes to art making. But I, I, I am very, very tuned in to thinking about what it is that we can do in order to better educate kids in, in ways that are productive. And I think, I think the path there, Emily, runs directly through collage. Okay. Because collage, you can have a variation of papers available you know, so you don't have to be mixing paint because when you let young kids mix paint, it, it's like immediately it goes mud, right? Like you can't explain to them, here's how you make a crisp, clean orange, like forget about it. But if you have all those colorful pieces of paper laid out and they can choose the color they want, just the action of, I think, right? I'm not, I, I've never taught kids, but I've, you know, speculated on the issue because it's close to my heart. I think the the, the option of, picking your favorite colors and designing them in a frame such that they work well together is the most painterly thing you can give somebody young. Let me go as far as say that there's also an element in collage that has to do with designing shapes, right? A lot of, a lot of teaching, you know, kind of falls flat when people are busily trying to blend colors together and 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 therefore ignore the larger more concretely designed shapes collage doesn't allow that you know in collage if i'm trying to make the color of the shadow i got to cut out the, the the shape of that color from the right piece of paper and glue it exactly where it belongs and so i think if i had a group of kids 
I would do a whole collage workshop. And before, maybe even before you get to color, you just have at the beginning, like a series of just black and white, you know, 10, 10 papers from pure white to pure black and all the variations of gray in between. And I'm sure we can discuss this, how you can do like a, do like a demo collage of a Vermeer, right? Where you allocate all those shapes and, and then you can actually make like um, cutouts of here's the shape of the side of this Caravaggio's face. Here's this. And then they can come in. And if those templates are done on acetate, then they can like trace their own shapes and make their own faces from the, it's like the idea of here's a shape that if I make correctly, it's going to translate into a visual effect. I think is way easier to explain in collage when you're literally cutting those shapes out and looking at how those shapes look like. And then, you know, introducing a series of value-based pieces of paper that later become color pieces of paper with transparent templates. Like that's the workshop I would do because I think, I think if a kid can, can, and I think if you do like two or three collage demos that I know you can do and we can, we can workshop this together uh, these kids, you know, they're going to understand it immediately without ever having to pick up a brush. They're going to get it. It's shapes. And once you have the right shapes, if you allocate the right value or you allocate the right color, bam, you're in business. Then all you need to do is blur some edges, but you're gold. You're already there. And I think that's like, that's the, that's having thought about it for a while. Now, I believe that's the way that's how we're going to educate the youth. I feel like that's, that is, that's a really great one. I like that idea. And, and even like for my younger ones, the, the idea of cutting out a shadow shape is way complex. Like we're still learning how to use scissors, but my mm-hmm. older ones might be able to start understanding that. But even if I were to have, you know, a set of triangles in the 10 shades of gray and then, okay, let's figure out how to make these triangles into this ball. And we've got to find our highlight. Where's our highlight? Where's the whitest white and let's pop that there and then let's get our core shadow and like we'd be able to oh oh I've got like so many you can even work like pixels if you have a grid on the paper and then you know you cut them into little um how do you call it um psifas how do you say it in English uh mosaic think about it think about it like a mosaic right you can have have them do a grid and then every piece of the paper just you just have to pick one color and bump that in there and by looking at, you can even show them ancient Greek mosaics and it's just about putting the right color in the right place. And that way they don't have to cut anything in advance. You can just cut them all into squares and run the mosaic workshop. That's killer. Yeah, this is a great idea. Also, that's a lesson I don't have to get out paints. So yeah, I, I think that's, that's my experience with young, with yeah. younglings, you know, it just immediately turns muddy and people eat the paint and like we can't have that so <laughs> that's so right now i'm thinking like the way to educate the youth runs directly through collage just that's what we got to do yeah that's really that's really great thanks for that advice i am i'm going to be focusing a lot on on drawing techniques and very i kind of told the parents we weren't going to end up with a whole bunch of things that they were going to be putting on the refrigerator but we were going to be learning techniques and that might be a grayscale one day and that's gonna get them further than like I don't know 
drawing something for the fridge. I don't know. I, but I, I really want to focus on techniques. And I'm so happy that you're doing this. I, I yeah. think you're like the person for the job because with all my, you know, I've, I, 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 re- I feel very strongly that there should be more serious, rigorous art courses for, for, young, for young people. I'm just like, temperamentally, I'm not great with kids. But I'm psyched that you're doing it. It feels to me like public service, really. And if there's anything that I can do to like help with the curriculum or anything like that, just you know, feel free. like i'll 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 be psyched to help. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. Of course. yeah, i'm I'm also um bringing in um, like each week we're going to be looking at, you know, an art history, something that can, I can point to this technique in this painting or in this, you know, and so if you have anything, any, any paintings that you're specifically like, oh my gosh, you have to do this one when you're talking about perspective or, you know, whatever, shoot them over. Cause yeah. Let me know what your topics are and I'll, I'll help you. I'll, I'll help you pick the references. Okay. Thanks, Ken. Appreciate of course. it. Fantastic. All right, people. So thank you for asking super interesting questions. And I'll just uh, end on a reminder that uh, next week and the week after that and the week after that, we meet same time. I don't know, same place. I'll be in the same place. You guys can be wherever you want. Uh, we'll be here and we're going to be getting our hands dirty. We're going to be learning how to draw with pastels, which is going to be totally rock and roll. And what's going to happen after that, if we can imagine another month into the future, Uh, if you guys have enough of, uh, of pastel and you want to kind of switch things around, I did not forget about that painting that we're going to be making from the drawing of Daniela. I did not forget. So to anybody who wasn't a part of this workshop, but is a Patreon member, I'm already uploading these lessons, right? So if you see all these lessons being uploaded called Three Color Drawing from Life, that's for you because I love you. You got to watch these lessons. You got to do this drawing because in the not so far away future, we're going to take that drawing and convert it into a painting and it's going to be rock and roll. So I hope everybody's excited and on board for that. And uh, thank you all for the really wonderful questions. And I'll see you all next week for the beginning of our pastel adventure. Bye, everyone. Take care. Thank you for joining me. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to see it grow, please take a moment to subscribe, rate it highly, and share it with a friend. If you'd like to become a supporter of the show and have access to exclusive content, please consider signing up as a patron at patreon.com slash Ken Goshen. For online lessons, please visit kengoshen.com slash lessons. Thanks again, and see you next time.